Hello, and welcome to the Ethics of Literature. So, I want to start off our discussion on this one, and it is probably going to be a long and thorough and sophisticated discussion, which we'll talk about more later. Um, but I want to start, as I often do in my classes, with a question. Um, specifically, I want to ask the question, is speaking ethical? Um, is there a moral value when you open your mouth? Can you speak wrongly or rightly? And on the one hand, you'll probably notice from many of my other lectures where I also start out with a question that I typically use this for rhetorical purposes, that I, that I want to like open up a discussion but not necessarily answer the question or, you know, give a rough definition just for us to think about these things and how broad the topic is. When I ask, like, what is mythology? Really, it's about, you know, thinking about the various kinds of mythology and what could constitute mythology rather than giving a hard definition. Or when I ask, what is love? The point is to think about exactly how ill-defined this actually is in our minds. That's not what I'm doing here. When I ask the question, is speaking ethical, I do have an answer in mind. And in fact, most of the people I talk to pretty quickly come up with an answer. Namely, yeah, obviously. Um, many, many writers over the many centuries of people being writers um, have come to the conclusion that, of course, speaking is ethical. You know, Plato has his whole diatribe in the Republic where he emphasizes that, you know, certain myths are, are necessarily pernicious, um, detrimental to, to, you know, young people's minds, and therefore we need to be careful about teaching something like Homer or Hesiod to our impressionable youth. Or you've got Jesus saying things like, it is not what goes into your mouth that defiles you, but what comes out of it. You know, you will necessarily damn yourself more easily by speaking evil to others than you will by taking in, you know, food that is unclean, so to speak. Um, all the way up to many, many ethical writers later on in, in, philosoph in philosophy's history, like Kant saying that it's unethical to break a promise, or, you know, Goethe writing The Sorrows of Young Werther and causing all of these people to commit suicide, or did they take that wrong? Who knows? Um, even down to things like us saying, you know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Which is kind of bullshit. Like, that's what I want to emphasize here. It's bullshit to argue that speaking is not in some way ethical. That we aren't in some way culpable or responsible for the things that we say as well as the things that we do. And the reason why I ask this question, and the reason why I want to emphasize that it's bullshit to come up with any other answer, but yes, obviously, is because for some reason here in the 21st century, and for most of the 20th century, or at least here in America, we tend to be really touchy about this. Like, we would very much, when presented with the question, is speaking ethical, immediately, like, after getting through the initial response to, you know, all of these people saying yes, obviously, all of these people, you know, arguing that there is, in fact, an ethical dimension, we tend to get defensive. Our, our second response to this is, but wait, the freedom of speech. 
Like, maybe speaking is ethical, but it certainly shouldn't be legislated, and it shouldn't certainly shouldn't be censored, and we certainly shouldn't be going around faulting others for stating their opinions. But there's something really ridiculous about this position. The idea that lying should somehow be protected under this freedom of speech argument, or that having a really terrible opinion, like if you are terribly racist, or if you are promulgating propaganda, or if you are like specifically going out of your way to indoctrinate people with a conspiracy theory, that this should somehow be off-limits from ethical judgment, that your opinions are somehow sacrosanct and expressing your opinions should not get you into any trouble whatsoever. We tend to think that this is the sort of cornerstone of our modern, intelligent, rational society, that being able to disagree and debate, the ability to entertain potentially pernicious or terrible opinions and ideas should somehow be guaranteed to us. But as just about any decent ethicist should remind you at this point, there is a big difference between like government involvement, censorship, the abrogation of the freedom of speech on the one hand, and saying that speech is ethical on the other. What I am suggesting here, what I am saying is manifestly obvious to virtually every thinker who, you know, bothers to think about this for a while, is that there is, in fact, ethical value to this. That when you, in fact, state your opinions, or for that matter, state something you don't believe in, or for that matter, when you lie or bullshit or speak honestly, with whether you speak or remain silent at a given moment, this has ethical value. You can be a good person for speaking the right thing at the right time, and a bad person for speaking the wrong thing at a wrong time. And this can be every bit as simple as, you know, not telling a friend of yours that they are about to do something foolish or dangerous and thus, and like, inadvertently causing them pain and harm. And it can definitely extend to something as sophisticated as a president going on live television and saying something that is manifestly untrue. All of the things between these two extremes should be ethical, and things beyond this spectrum as well. And this is not to say that we need to immediately take on a program of limiting speech or judging people or shaming them for the things that they say. This just means there is ethical value here. There is an ethical imperative to say certain things at certain times and to not say certain things at certain times. Like, even the, the freedom of speech itself, there are obvious exceptions to this. Like, the classic example is it is not protected speech to yell fire in a crowded auditorium. Like, to cause a panic, to cause people to, you know, stampede out the door and potentially hurt one another. To cause or incite a riot, in short. That has never been protected by freedom of speech, and that is the very obvious exception. But that can also extend to things like hate speech to, you know, saying something especially racist and, you know, getting a crowd to respond violently as well. Now, 
This seems relatively obvious, although complicated, and we have plenty of court cases bumping up against things like the freedom of speech when it comes to like school censorship or pornography or indeed inciting violence. Um, we have plenty of situations where it gets trickier. But possibly one of the trickiest places of all, and yet one of the most inflammatory, is when it comes to art, and literature especially. We get really, really uncomfortable when we start applying this very obvious ethical maxim, speaking is ethical, to works of literature and art. And there's a pretty good reason for this. Um, art, we tend to think, operates in a different sphere than speech generally. Like, it is a huge difference for you to tell your friend a lie in order to get them to do something for you, or that will help you, versus writing a book that convinces a whole bunch of people of something that is untrue, and therefore causes a gradual cultural shift towards a perspective that you want people to adopt. Um, as... Like, people will deny that that cultural shift is possible. People will deny that, you know, books can have this kind of effect on people, or for that matter, movies, TV, whatever. Um, you will have people fighting on the way that literature works before you even get to, can it be ethical? Can it, in fact, have this effect on people? Should a person be allowed to do this, etc., etc.? And yet, especially over here in America, we get really, really grumpy about our books, about our television shows, about our movies, and we tend to be pretty quick to call them unethical. So on the one hand, this is something that's happening casually all the time. Like, every time somebody brings Fahrenheit 451 before the PTA and says that this is pornography and we shouldn't be teaching it to our students, we are casually engaging in an ethics of literature that we don't necessarily fully understand, but like generally think should be implicit in our culture anyway. But the reaction to this is, is equally problematic. Specifically, every time someone does come out of the woodwork and say, we need to censor this or that great work of art, or we need to protect our children from this or that artistic experience, we tend to get the free speech warriors, i.e. academics, teachers, liberals of a wide variety of stripes, coming out and saying, that's not how this works. Literature can't do this to people. Exposing people to a wide variety of different perspectives is, in essence, good. Why are we even having this conversation? And I'm not just saying this from the perspective of, like, some, you know, secretly conservative person who is, you know, trying to, like, argue that liberalism has gotten too snowflakey or, like, too invested in a sort of spurious version of diversity or whatever. I'm saying this as, again, a defender of the principle that we started with, namely that speaking is ethical. And by extension, some art is ethical and or unethical. And we are therefore, to some degree, responsible for being able to tell the difference between the two and being careful about A, what we read, and B, especially what we like encourage others to read. Um, which means, at the end of the day, we are talking about censorship here. Like, I want to stress, again, there is a huge difference between, hey, 
freedom of speech, government interference, legal, you know, status of speech slash literature versus ethical discussion of these things. Like, we can say that a book is pernicious or bad and not go to the next step and say, therefore we should ban it, therefore we should prevent it from being in schools, therefore etc, etc, etc. Um... But I want to emphasize, if we're going to open up discussion number one, we're going to end up talking about discussion number two. If we're going to have the, this is a bad book conversation, we're going to necessarily have the, therefore, who should be reading this conversation next. And that's kind of the problem here. Um, as much as I want to emphasize that, yes, some books may in fact be pernicious, some books may encourage us to do bad things, some books may encourage us to think in ways that are pernicious or destructive, and we're going to be talking about a lot of different writers who are going to come up with that conclusion about certain works of literature on certain levels in certain ways from a wide, diverse group of perspectives, at the end of the day, that is what they are calling for. Like... They can call for it in different degrees. Like when Chinua Achebe calls out jo Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, he's not trying to get it banned. He's trying to get it reduced in its scope. But essentially that means he is trying to get it reduced in scope. He's trying to get fewer people to read it. He's not going out of his way to say, no, we should be locking it up in some, you know, like Library of Congress equivalent of the Vatican so it never sees the light of day. He is emphasizing that it shouldn't be taught as regularly as it is in schools across the country. And consequently, kids shouldn't be reading this. They shouldn't be exposed to this. The right and the left are kind of of two minds about this issue. Because on the one hand, the right is, as you'll notice, quick to defend free speech when it means allowing something that is particularly kind to their perspective through the machine of liberal criticism, whereas the left will also go about criticizing and questioning and doing things like that, even as they argue that, yes, we should have a, a bounty of diverse perspectives, but those shouldn't necessarily include works that are implicitly racist, works that are implicitly sexist, etc., etc. We are working with a nonpartisan issue here. Like, I know I specifically don't say bipartisan because there's no way that there's cooperating and everybody very dis much disagrees about which work should be in which camp. Um, but at the end of the day, we are talking about something that both sides of the political spectrum do. In fact, all sides of the polit political spectrum are inclined to do this. And an issue which is necessarily going to become political as soon as you have that conversation. Okay, so if it is an ethical work, does that mean that we need to like go out of our way to stop people from reading it? Now, I should emphasize, we started with one question. And it took us 15 minutes to get well into the weeds here. Um, and I want to you know emphasize right here from the outset, this is going to happen. Um, this is a hugely important issue, i.e. it is something that people care a lot about, but it is also a hugely complex issue in that it ties into a lot of other disciplines as we're going to talk about. But what I want to emphasize here and now, right before we start this whole project, and because it's at least partially the reason why I got into this project in the first place, is that this is dangerous. And when we talk about various 
people talking about censorship, talking about the ethics of literature, sort of questioning the ethical value or validity of certain works of art, we have to recognize that this is sort of fundamentally against the philosophy underlying academia and scholarship to begin with. When I started researching this, like, many years ago, back when I was an undergrad, back when I started studying John Gardner and, like, learning about the fallout after he wrote on moral fiction, I was attracted to the subject on the one hand because it seems so very obvious, because is speaking ethical is so clearly a question that gets that has an answer. Like, so many scholars, so many thinkers, so many great figures across history have very much emphasized, yes, obviously, therefore we need to be careful about what we say, and for that matter, what we listen to slash read. But on the other hand, I recognize that in academia, especially, you cannot bring up this subject. Like, yes, you may have a whole bunch of academics all in agreement that Conrad's Heart of Darkness is in some way pernicious or insensitive or even culturally destructive in some way, but you cannot make the next move. You cannot say that it is unethical that Conrad wrote it, and you cannot say that it is unethical that we consistently read it. For the academic world, this idea of free exchange of ideas is sacrosanct. It's the basis of what they're doing. There can be no limits, because to have those limits necessarily limits the ability of academia to think of new ideas, to entertain new perspectives, to do its job, in short. But I think there's also another dimension here, namely that academics are necessarily writers as well. And if you start that conversation about censorship, if you start having that conversation about what can and should be written, committed to paper, you're going to threaten their jobs. You are going to threaten their livelihoods. And there are many, many examples of this actually being the case. Like, this is not some, you know, highfalutin theoretical thing where it's like, well, naturally, since these people are writers, they are upset anytime somebody abrogates writing. No, I'm talking about, like, real examples. People, like, actual academics being actually censored. McCarthyism here in the States threatening artists and, and writers with the, you know with the brand of, of being communists and therefore traitors to the state, or alternatively, Stalin, like, purging various political dissidents during, during like, the Stalinist purges, or, for that matter, the Cultural Revolution in China. Like, there are clear-cut examples of how destructive these kind of cultural censorship programs can be. So there is a real danger here. And that's what makes this subject so fraught. When John Gardner wrote On Moral Fiction in the 80s, he almost immediately got drummed out of academia. Like, Gardner was not a terribly popular figure in academia to begin with. He was a little conservative for most academic tastes, which is a complicated, you know, name and discussion here that we're not going to get into, but we'll certainly get into later. But when he, you know, after publishing many books that had been critically received and, and very much appreciated, and like after having a long, you know, very productive career being a creative writing professor, he writes this one book saying, hey, there are certain writers out there who are doing a disservice to the culture at large, literature in general, and people across the board, and people immediately just shut him down. 
did not pay any attention to his final novel, no matter how great that novel might be, and basically concluded that this guy was a hack, that he was doing more harm than good, that he had that his entire outlook was fundamentally flawed and potentially dangerous. In short, this is a subject that very few people are writing about because a lot of people get mad about it. And it is often the same people who prove to be allies in other situations who end up turning on you when you bring up this subject. That's why it fascinates me as much as it does. Because here is something so manifestly obvious, i.e. speaking is ethical, therefore literature is ethical, coming to a completely snarled third rail of a conclusion. Namely, we need to be careful about what we say and what we read. The writers that we are going to be reading in this discussion, in this series of lectures, are writers who have, in one way or another, approached this topic. And that includes people with fairly conservative sort of agendas who are very much emphasizing that some literature is ethical and some literature is not, and that there should therefore be, you know, a way of distinguishing between the two. But also a number of writers who are quick to avoid this conclusion. Writers who are emphasizing that all artists should be allowed to say whatever they want for whatever justification or reasoning that they come up with. And I want to entertain all of these positions, all of these perspectives. I want to basically take a look at anyone who dared to talk about this stuff, because the story that kind of emerges, especially here in the 20th century, as we look between, you know, Tolstoy at the very end of the 19th century and Booth coming into the end of the 20th, um, is exactly, A, how, you know, bold these writers are just to broach this subject in the first place, because they are, at the end of the day, all writers, and therefore kind of like shooting themselves in the foot when they say that, you know, some literature is good, some literature is bad. Like Tolstoy even goes so far as to say that some of his own writing is unethical, um, and that therefore, you know, you shouldn't read the books that he's already written. Um, like, one way or another, you are at the end of the day kind of, like, hurting yourself when you weigh in on this topic uh, one way or the other. But also, many of the writers who we are going to be talking about are famous for having been kind of railroaded out of the academic world. Um, Tolstoy, when he started getting super ethical, everyone turned on him. Like, he got, you know, very much exiled from Russian from the Russian church to begin with and wouldn't even be buried appropriately when, at the end of the day. Um, some of that is because of his radical views on Christianity, but you better believe that they are deeply interconnected with his views on art, on literature, and on morality. Um, Ayn Rand, this is the first time we're going to be reading Rand in, in my lecture series, is famous for being this sort of outcast of the academic world and, and having this very narrow sort of kind of hyper-conservative objectivist perspective, which to this day is kind of brought up and championed by conservatives and sort of ridiculed and lampooned by the left. And of course, we've got John Gardner, who made his bid and very much got kicked out of academia as a consequence. On the one hand, I want to talk about this because, again, it's stupidly obvious, but on the other hand, I definitely want to talk about this because there's a mortality to it. Writers care about this stuff so much that they are willing to tank their careers for it, and other writers are, care about this so much that they're willing to tank other people's careers for it. 
this is weirdly involved, weirdly something that causes people to get very passionate. And, you know, here in the 21st century, it's we've got plenty of contemporary examples of the same. Like, every time some, you know, new Marvel movie featuring a, a female or black character come, shows up, we get a whole bunch of ethical discussion. We get a whole bunch of, you know, potentially, like, bad thinkers on the right saying, you know, this is just pandering, or this is just a big diversity, this is pure hypocrisy, utter nonsense, commercialized bullshit. And you have a whole bunch of defenders on the left who say the same. Or, or who, you know, fight them on it. Who argue that actually we need to protect this. Actually this is a good idea. Actually this is moving the entire discussion forward. You do not represent the whole of, you know, the viewing audience. The, the commercial consumers who are, who are engaged in appreciating this, this work of art, this medium. But this also engages in the whole commercial versus, like, artistic goals of these works. You know, I've been doing a lecture series for a while now on Assassin's Creed and emphasizing that oftentimes the, the artistic or, you know, like, actual, you know, philosophical merits of the series are undermined by the commercial goals of the series. That they are sort of drowned out by this kind of committee uh, perspective towards game making. Um, but on the other hand, we also have, you know, the kind of cancel culture, as much as this is not a thing and invented by the right, we do have a lot of people on the left arguing that this or that property, this or that work, this or that, you know, book or movie or television show is morally bankrupt because of this, that, or the other thing, because it doesn't meet the needs of the Bechdel test, because it doesn't, you know, present black people in a terribly, you know, uh, positive light because it includes a character who has blackface. Like, there's a ton of potential discussions to be had about this, and it's something that, again, people are engaging with all the time, but there's no philosophical groundwork for it. There's no structure underlying their criticism in most cases because it is very, very rare that a writer actually comes out with a program for this because there is a great risk that if they do they will get drummed out of the community that's what fascinates me about this that's why i feel like we desperately need to have this conversation and i am in a uniquely privileged position as far as that's concerned because nobody gives a shit about what i think um, on the one hand, I can approach this as scholarly as I want to, and I, I aspire to approach this as scholarly as I want to. I don't just want to be another voice banging on about, you know, how evil it is that, you know, like, one or another writer is still going about their business, you know, even though the community, quote in quotes, is supposedly, like, dead set against it, even though, you know, we've proven objectively that he is immoral or bankrupt. Um... On the one hand, I am going to hold myself to a higher standard that. I am going to aspire to academics on this. But at the same time, I don't have an academic community to offend. Like, what are they going to do? Stop letting me teach intro to philosophy classes? Stop exploiting my labor and paying me too little in order to teach? I feel like this conversation needs to be had. And I, I'm not out here to prove something. Like, I don't have an agenda. I'm not here to do the same thing that these writers are doing and, in fact, say, you know, this is a good work of literature, this is a bad work of literature, I am not going to come up with a system for dividing the sheep from the goats. 
Um, my goal here is to talk about the writers who have ventured on this discussion, to weigh the merits of their arguments, and to present them here so we can have a more educated, more elevated discussion every time that this thing comes up. We need to be able to have some kind of philosophical basis for our discussion of ethical criticism if we're going to, again, refute the people who are bad actors and who are just trying to promulgate some political agenda and who are just trying to turn literature into a, you know, vector for propaganda. But also we need to, you know, be able to watch our own backs to emphasize that, hey, if there are negative consequences of certain artistic works, if we are going to say that Michael Bay is racist or sexist or whatever, we're going to have to do it from a certain perspective. And until we do... We're kind of all dabbling in hypocrisy here. We're all just sort of firing our guns without actually appreciating the talent needed to aim. Um, we are potentially causing harm because criticism to and judgment to is, at the end of the day, ethical. And because, as we started... Speaking is ethical, because when you tweet, when you condemn, when you criticize, when you make an angry YouTube video, all of these things are also ethical. And you better believe we're going to bump into that here, too. Now, the scope and the sort of, like, stakes here, I think I've made especially obvious at this point. Um, I think I've made it clear that A, literature is in fact ethical or has an ethical dimension, and it, this is definitely something we should be talking about because B, we already are talking about it, and a lot of people are already worked up about this, and we should probably be talking about this intelligently rather than just willy-nilly without any, you know, sort of ground for our argumentation. Um, I also want to talk about how complex this is. Like, we've already brought it up a couple of times. It's already pretty obvious from the fact that we're half an hour into this lecture and have, like, gotten nowhere as far as that, that the sort of actual, like, philosophy, the actual perspectives are concerned. Like, just appreciating how much this is a thing in our culture um, has taken a half an hour and, and the sort of nuances and political dimensions and you know, angry Twitter feeds and censorship and the whole thing, like, that was enough. But I also want to emphasize that as much as this is complex in its execution, it is also complex in its theory. Like, this is by far the most sophisticated and complicated lecture series that I have, that I am, have presented at this point. Like, mythology, my general humanities course, my various philosophy courses, like, all of those imply, or sort of are structured in such a way that a new person unfamiliar with the discipline can come to this lecture series, listen to it, and be content with what they find there. There are no prerequisites. There are no, you know, probably you should have listened to or read these other things before you listen to or read whatever I'm going to say. All of this is, assumes a neophyte coming to this subject matter with no prior training, no prior experience, you did not have to take Philosophy 101 in order to take, you know, my, like, love and friendship class, whatever. This is the first one where I'm kind of going to turn against that a little bit. Like, I should emphasize, if you are listening to this as your first ever Professor Koslowski lecture, that's fine. 
And you are welcome to continue listening to this lecture series, and you are welcome to go through all of the rest of my thoughts on the ethics of literature, and I'm going to, at least as much as possible, try and structure it in such a way that anyone can listen to it without any prior training. But on the other hand, I've got to emphasize. A, we're going to be in hot political water a lot of the time for all the reasons that I just finished talking about. But B, it's also going to require a great deal of knowledge just to get in the door here. Um, where Intro to Philosophy and all of my other philosophy courses are sort of structured as into intro classes, like let's get the basics out of the way, I am going to assume you already know the basics here. And for this discussion, the basics are kind of a lot. Um, like, when I was picking the readings for, for our lecture series, for our discussion, the next, you know, however many weeks it turns out to be, I'm conservatively estimating 16, um, I very much had to pick and choose. Because as much as this is definitely my specialty, and as much as I do kind of have a sort of reserved list of books that I like to think of as the ethics of literature... It's really deeply connected with a lot of other disciplines. And in order to properly appreciate the stuff that we're going to be talking about here, you're going to need more than just the books we're going to read for this class. If the most sophisticated, complicated class I've taught up until this point is probably the philosophy of love and friendship, which is, at the end of the day, like a 100-level class, this one I would call a 300 or maybe even a 400-level class. Because I'm going to assume a great deal of familiarity with a bunch of the stuff that I've talked about in other lectures, that I've talked about in other places, and stuff that I haven't talked about, and just assume that you know, because if we're going to be talking about the ethics of literature, we're already way above a whole bunch of other disciplines and a whole bunch of other perspectives and a whole bunch of other things you need to know. I'm going to spend some time talking about what that means later on, like what the, quote, supplementary readings in this class should include. Um, but for now, I kind of just want to emphasize that this discussion occurs at the nexus of a whole bunch of disciplines. Um, most obviously, there's going to be a lot of philosophy of language flying around in this discussion, which is kind of a, you know, misdirect, because when philosophy of language happens, it tends to be focused on, like, language itself, so if you were going to be reading Wittgenstein or Searle or Austin or Derrida or, you know, any number of other writers sort of weighing into that conversation, whether it's as simple as Bertrand Russell and, and Gottlob Frege or as complicated as someone like W.V.O. Quine or, or, God forbid, Rorty, um, whatever the, the deal is there, I am going to assume a certain amount of knowledge about that because, like... The philosophy of language tends to focus on language separate from literature, separate from the sort of artistic constructions, but it is going to have a lot of the same assumptions. You know, many of our writers are going to get into the same kind of water as you will find in a philosophy of language discussion, and Gardner, who is knowledgeable enough about philosophy to really get into it, actually, like, name-drops Wittgenstein and talks about how Wittgenstein is incompatible with the whole business of literature in the first place. You'll also notice that a couple of the writers on this list definitely could fall into the category of being philosophers of language. Derrida especially, you know, we're going to read his thoughts on literature and, and sort of, like, talk about how it relates to his other philosophical musings and how, you know, literature relates to language for Derrida and all that sort of thing. Um, but at the end of the day, we're not going to do that very often. I'm going to assume that you've got a pretty good understanding of Wittgenstein's Tractatus Logico Philosophicus and the Philosophical Investigations. 
I'm going to assume that you know what speech act theory is as J.L. Austin and Searle present it. And while we will discuss it, we will probably do a good bit of summarizing there to sort of explain the, the relevance. I don't want to get bogged down in those weeds. It's much more likely that I'm just going to name drop and move on which means you should probably have some familiarity with this stuff. And again, philosophy of language is not the be-all and end-all here. I'd also say that having a decent basis in semiotics would be helpful. Like, if we're going to be talking about how literature, you know, is ethical, we're going to have to talk to some degree about how literature communicates meaning, which is a semiotics discussion. Um, and, you know, a lot of the assumptions that these writers are making is that, hey, you know, if I create a character and have a character do X and be rewarded with Y, there is an ethical assumption at stake here. In order to get to why do characters, you know, have ethical consequences, why do we read these characters as and their rewards as being, you know, like in, indicative of how we should behave and how the writer wants us to behave, that's very much semiotics territory, so maybe go track down like an intro to semiotics textbook and, and take a look at that or something. Um, likewise, we're also going to be in psychology territory. Um, I am not a psychologist. I have very much meant to get more knowledgeable about the psychology underlying a lot of this discussion. Um, I have a few books that I definitely think would be relevant, but again, I'm just scratching the surface here. Like, I definitely dived into the deep end of this pool long before I did a lot of this background work that I'm telling you is going to be relevant and going to connect to things. But we're definitely going to be talking about some Freudian theory. We're definitely going to be bumping into these, this idea that like mythology and language and literature especially have psychological influence on us, can cause us to behave in certain ways, um, or at the very least is connected to behaving in certain ways. You know, it's no accident when Goethe publishes this book and then magically all of these people start committing suicide. We've got to talk about the actual psychology underlying this as well as the ethics of, you know, is it right or wrong to publish a book that promotes or at least encourages or whatever is going on here about suicide. Um, if we're going to say, you know, yes, literature has a consequence, yes, literature affects people, then we've got to talk about the psychological dimensions, and logically we also have to talk about the sociological dimensions as well. So get your Habermas out, because we're kind of be going to be running out in that territory as well. Um, we also are probably going to bump into hermeneutics from time to time, like getting Gadamer's Truth and Method and, you know, reading through that might be a good plan as well. Um, like, at the very least, I'm going to be talking about hermeneutics as, you know, how do we interpret any text, much less, like, the really important, super-duper big-deal texts like the Bible, like Homer. Um, and arguably a lot of these writers are bumping into hermeneutics all the time, whether or not they know it. Um, I know that hermeneutics is kind of specifically geared towards, like, scripture and, and theology and, and, like, texts of great monumental importance, but at least most of the time when you talk to hermeneuticists, um, people who actually study hermeneutics, they would apply it to all literature, and therefore that's relevant here as well, you know. If we are going to be talking about what is literature's effect on people, we should probably also be talking about how do people interpret meaning from these texts in the first place, i.e. hermeneutics. Um, and obviously, perhaps more obviously than many of the other things on this list, we're going to be bumping into literary theory a lot. Um, 
quite a few of our writers come from literary theory backgrounds. Quite a few of them are sort of literary critics in their own right. Booth especially is a hardcore literary theorist, and his entire, you know, the, the company we keep book very much comes on the back of the rhetoric of fiction and a lot of other writings of that nature. Um, the fact is, these are all things that we're going to be bumping into pretty regularly in these discussions. Anything to do with language, anything to do with the psychology and sociology and sort of cultural influences of language, as well as the business of studying and interpreting literature, be it hermeneutical or literary theoretical, all of that is on the table here. Um, and that's letting alone the fact that this is, at the end of the day, also an ethics course. Like, we're going to be talking about ethics, so get out your Kant, get out your Aristotle, get out your Mill, we're going to be bumping into the groundwork of the metaphysics of morals and, you know, the utilitarian theory and all that fun stuff as well. That's what I want to emphasize here. Just by opening up this discussion, I want to stress we are getting into a whole lot of other disciplines as well. Um, and a lot of the stuff I know, a lot of the stuff I don't. Because as much as this is sort of the focus of my kind of own personal, like, if I were to sit down and write a dissertation right now, this is probably what it would be on, I recognize the fact that I need a whole lot more knowledge before I can really do justice to this. I've read a lot of the books that I am sort of implying here, like I know enough about semiotics to be able to, you know, talk about how it connects to this discussion, how it connects to the, the theory of, like, an ethical ver view of literature. Um, but I definitely don't know enough about it to call myself an expert in semiotics by any extent of the imagination. Like, I've read a little Roland Barthes, I've read a little Umberto Eco, I've read a couple of introductory textbooks, hell, I've gone all the way back and read, you know, like, Saussure's course on general linguistics and, and how that sort of, like, opens the door to semiotics. Like, I know a decent amount about this stuff. But there's a lot on this list that I don't. Again, I haven't read Steven Pinker and his theory about storytelling and how it affects the brain. I want to. I definitely think this is a high priority. Hopefully, you know, if I get some time this semester, I might even be able to read it before we get to the end of this course. Um, but I haven't yet. I am still not that knowledgeable about a lot of the fundamental underlying disciplines that are contributing to these perspectives. And that's okay. Because on the one hand, I want to stress, we are going to be bumping into these things pretty frequently and therefore talking about these things pretty frequently, but most of the writers we're going to be talking about here aren't terribly familiar with this stuff either. Um, many of these writers are coming from one particular discipline and therefore not appreciating the way that it influences all these other disciplines, or the way that all these other inf disciplines influence it. We're going to be looking at this primarily from a philosophical and literary theoretical perspective, Largely because most of the people we're going to be talking about here are, in fact, writers. And that's the other kind of discussion I want to have here in our introductory lecture. I want to talk about why I picked the writers I did, and what sort of links them together here. Because, again, with this many overlapping disciplines kind of, you know, Venn diagramming their way to some dark, like, place where they all meet... Um, as much as that's, like, I'm sort of imposing, or as much as I'm kind of assuming that there is this separate discipline, this this unique place where all of these, these ideas kind of meet and give fruit, um, and as much as I can boil it down to a very simple question, namely, is literature ethical, um, I want to emphasize that I am imposing order on this class a lot. 
like the business of cherry picking all of the the readings that we're going to have this semester this series is very much something artificial something that i've kind of created myself i am not working off of somebody else's syllabus here in fact i'd be kind of shocked to find that anyone else is doing anything remotely similar to this in the academic world for again all the reasons that i started this lecture by talking about um, on the one hand, there are some books that are super duper obvious, books that I've been reading and rereading forever in order to sort of like fine-tune and hone my pers perspective on the ethical ramifications of sitting down and writing a book, um, namely something like Tolstoy's What is Art, widely considered a classic of this very nuanced subgenre, or for that matter, Gardner's On Moral Fiction, or again, Booth's The Company We Keep. All of these books I found incredibly profitable and instructive as far as understanding the ethical nuances surrounding the reading, writing, and interpretation of literature. Um, but this is hardly a genre. Um, and while I could definitely buttress these classic works of the genre with, you know, let's read some philosophy of language, let's read some semiotics, let's read some psychology, let's read some literary theory, let's read some actual ethical texts, and then once we have that background, then we can finally approach, you know, Tolstoy or Gardner or whoever. As much as that would be a legitimate approach to this, I just knew that if we started on the background, we'd never leave the background. There's way too much to study there. You know, one of these days I'm going to do a whole series on philosophy of language all by itself, but today is not the day. I wanted to jump into these works the way that I jumped into these works a long time ago, in part because I think you can approach this stuff pretty much with no background, but also because... Again, I don't know 100% of the stuff that I would need to know in order to put all of that background information together. Um, I'm not sure what the best source for an intro to semiotics discussion might be, much as I have some candidates in mind. Um, so on the one hand, making this list is definitely a product of my own sort of preferences, my own picking and choosing, my own sort of winnowing this topic down to something bite-sized and manageable, something that I could talk about in a matter of, again, 15 or 16 weeks, the way that I would expect an actual college course to transpire. But the criteria I ultimately started employing in order to kind of like separate these works from everything else um, was much more specific than that. Like, again, I started with a couple of works in mind. I wanted to talk about Gardner, I wanted to talk about Tolstoy, I wanted to talk about Booth, I would probably end up talking about Ayn Rand along the way, the rest were more up in the air, so to speak. Um, but as I started doing a little bit more research, as I started, like, going back through my readings and sort of picking and choosing which ones were especially relevant, maybe coming up with some new stuff along the way, I found myself making the choices I did according to the following criteria. One, I wanted to focus on broad theory. Um, most of the discussion of ethical criticism, of like what books are good and what books are bad, you know, in that literary theory perspective, tend to be bite-sized. It's, again, Shinua Achebe calling out Heart of Darkness, or a feminist critique of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, or, you know, an argument that, like, Ray Bradbury is implicitly racist in his particular writings. Um, and on the one hand, these are incredibly valuable and incredibly important to sort of untangling all of the threads here. That's not what I wanted to go with for this discussion. I wanted to look at broad theories. People who 
took on the task not just of saying this or that work is bad and this is why I think so, but rather people who were sort of uninterested in any particular work and instead interested in a whole body of work or the entire culture surrounding the work or trying to come up with a broad strokes what is literature why is it relevant why do we need to do it why is it ethical what makes good literature what makes bad literature perspective I wanted the big sweeping theories as much as possible I wanted the people who were approaching this from the classic philosophical standpoint of trying to be kind of like abstracted and also like untemporal. Um, let us create a theory that will apply to all works at all times. And there is something very wrong-headed about this. Like, don't get me wrong, again, a lot of the work going into let us cr t talk intelligently about the ethics of criticism is in the works of, you know, much more granular thinkers. You know, Mulvey's discussion of the male gaze, for example. Um, these sort of, like, rudimentary psychological or socio semiotic perspectives, sorry, again, all of the different perspectives here are, are very much bumping into each other. These kind of like bite-sized, granular, let's talk about this particular work and how it contributes to our understanding of the ethics of literature and criticism overall, rather than, you know, big-scale theories that are sort of summarizing and bringing all of these ideas together. But again, like, being able to do something like that in practice would be so freaking hard because a lot of the time that would mean reading all of the stuff that they're criticizing at the same time as we're reading all of the criticism. You know, I don't want to have us read both Heart of Darkness and Achebe's essay in order to get at Achebe's ideas, especially because Achebe is specifically talking about this particular work at this particular time, even though his ideas have been definitely sort of like applied to many other works across the board. So I want to stick with the broad theory as much as possible. That's criteria number one. Criteria number two is I want to keep it ethical. Like, I want to talk about the actual ethics underlying this discussion and not just end up with a purely descriptive, like, this is a broad strokes theory of literature kind of attitude, you know, in the same way that, like, the opening scenes of Dead Poet Society where Robin Williams first shows up and is like, tear out this cop part of your book! And all the kids, like, tear out the whole section on, you know, the content versus the, the artistic merit. Like, I don't want to get into that. Not for this discussion. Um, I do want to get into that eventually. Like, again, sort of trying to think of through the canon is definitely the thing getting in the way of me talking about Heart of Darkness right now. Um, but at the same time, it's not what I want to do here. Um, I want all of the writers we engage with to have, at the very least, a certain degree of ethical attitude brought to their subject matter. I want them to engage with the question, is it okay for us to read or write X or Y? Um, and I think I've done a pretty good job with that. There are a couple of exceptions here. I have occasionally broken this rule. Um, but more often than not, these are writers who have a certain priority, a certain thing that defines literature for them, and argue that literature that does not include whatever this thing is, is therefore defunct or broken or wrong in some way. They are, at the end of the day, making a normative distinction. We are not engaged in purely a descriptive enterprise, a purely, like, medieval-style, you know, bestiary of writers, a taxonomy of literature. Um, I want us to talk about, like, the actual business of, you know, literature affecting people, 
because again, that's the fundamental assumption here. That's what I want to talk about. That's the thing that's driving everybody nuts here in the 21st century. Let's talk about that specifically. Third, I want to focus on literature, not language. There are a ton of writers over the past hundred years or so who have in fact been engaged in the discussion of lying versus truth-telling, or Frankfurt's notion of bullshit. Um, people who are saying that certain languages are inclined to saying certain things, and that therefore we should be careful not to use this kind of language or this kind of, you know, literary formulation. Um, that's fine, and it's great, and I definitely want to get deeper into that as well, and it's definitely relevant to our conversation here. It's definitely part of that whole philosophy of language complex, which is very much the foundation of the stuff that I'm interested in. But I want to talk about the big stuff here. Stuff that philosophers are often uneasy talking about because it is very much out of their wheelhouse. Like, yes, it is fascinating to talk about the ethical merits or the, you know, speech act value of a given sentence or promise or a, you know, construction of language in one way or the other. But as much as I totally want to talk about J.L. Austin and Searle at some point and Derrida at another, I want to talk about how this applies to greater constructs of language. I want to talk about how this applies to literature, i.e. books, novels, um, TV shows, movies, etc., etc. I want to recognize that as much as there is this absolutely a huge merit in this granular discussion of the actual value of a sentence or the truth merits of a sentence or whatever, we have to make the jump at some point from the constructions of sentences to storytelling and therefore to literature, broadly speaking. And most philosophers are unwilling to make that jump. It's just too abstract. It suddenly becomes too great. Uh, many philosophers have a branch of aesthetics that they're willing to talk about, like we'll get into that in certain places. Um, many writers will talk about like Heidegger and his aesthetics, but on the one hand we're threading the needle of, you know, it has to be ethical and not purely aesthetic. It can't be just, you know, Aristotle saying these are the different kinds of poems and why they're, they're valuable, um, with the occasional like nuanced and this one is better than this one thrown in there for, you know, a little bit of ethical uh, judgment. No, I want to, on the one hand, to be very ethical, very motivated, very normative. On the other hand, I also want it to be on this these broad categories of literature and art, less so on the granular elements that can constitute a work of literature or art. And as much as possible, I want to include diverse perspectives. That was the fourth criteria, and definitely the one that I failed at the most. I hate to break it to everyone, but this is going to be a white dude's list. Um, like, we do in fact have a female writer, hooray, but it's Ayn Rand, so, oh. Um, we're not going to successfully, like, get too deep into racial perspectives on literature in this discussion. We're not going to successfully get into, you know, sexist perspectives on literature in this discussion. Um, largely because, again, there are very few writers who are making, who are willing to make that risk in the first place, who are willing to like jump and say, X is good literature, X is bad literature, um, and do it from that broad philosophical perspective and not just criticizing this or that particular work of literature. Um, there are very few who are willing to make that jump in the first place, requiring a person from a marginalized group in academia to make that jump at all, is super difficult, especially in the 20th century. 
Like, it does exist. Again, we are very much overlooking a lot of those writers because of the other criteria, like the fact that I am looking for a broad strokes, like, philosophy, which is, I suspect, something that dudes are more inclined to do in the 20th century than, or at least white dudes are more inclined to do in the 20th century than women or people of color. I mean, I've only got a fig leaf to hide behind on this one. I, I'll be perfectly honest with you. A lot of this is just because I don't know what else is out there. If there is a systematic critique of literature, a sort of like foundational racial or critical race theory text that, you know, encompasses the whole of literature that was written in the 20th century, I don't know about it. Like, I want to read more James Baldwin and get more of his literary critical perspectives. I want to read more of these other writers. I want to learn more about, like, Afrofuturism and, you know, black perspectives on writing. It just hasn't happened yet. Um, so, again, this is a high-level discussion by kind of an amateur who definitely has no business engaging in a high-level discussion. Because, again, there's so many different disciplines that we're bumping into here. And I just haven't had the time to get through all of them. Um, so let that be a caveat. Like, on the one hand, I did have a series of criteria in picking out the works here, and I suspect I'd be hard-pressed to come up with any other works that fit those criteria. But one, the criteria could be broken, and two, we are definitely bumping into the limits of my knowledge here. Um, we are definitely going to be kind of working beyond what my expertise in fact is. On the one hand, I do want to really talk about the works that I want to talk about here, and I definitely had those in mind coming to it, and I definitely consider myself knowledgeable about the works that I have chosen. Um, but at the same time, if you're looking for someone who is expert enough in semiotics and philosophy of language and psychology and sociology and literary theory and ethics to be able to give you a better perspective on this stuff, good luck. I don't know who that would be. Um, I have met quite a few of them in my travels. Most of them are dead now. Um, most of these books represent perspectives that I think are more knowledgeable than my own, and that's why I'm talking about them. Um, but, on the one hand, somehow I know these guys and not the people they're referring to in many cases, largely because... I'm not as old and haven't been in academia as long as these people, and I haven't been able to devote as much of my time to this study as I would have liked. Um, but again, we're going to read them, and hopefully they will point us to the other people we need to know about. Um, I should emphasize, though, that again, these are mostly white folks, and frequently conservative, because that means... Like, in order to have this discussion at all, you have to be willing to say there are some books that are bad, which is kind of a fundamentally conservative perspective in the first place. So if, in fact, my criteria has yielded stuff that fits what I want to talk about, it sort of inadvertently included a couple of perspectives that I find troubling. Um, again, a lot of these are conservative perspectives because the conservatives are the ones who tend to be more interested in the ethics of literature in general. Like, that's not to say that they all are. We definitely have our fair share of people who are like, hey, anything goes, writers can do whatever they want, which is itself an ethical position, and an ethical position I want to talk about. But it's not as nuanced or interesting or even terribly valid, I think, especially when you consider the fact that these days a liberal perspective on literary ethics would probably have to include appreciating intersectionality and diverse perspectives and how various works of literature can sort of marginalize or denigrate those perspectives, as, again, Booth will especially talk about. 
Um, we should also emphasize that while we are dealing with a subject matter that like is very much built on a diversity of perspectives, because the expertise needed to talk about, hey, there are literary or ethical consequences to writing is fairly narrow, and the expertise involved in that is kind of separate from a lot of these other disciplines, I want to emphasize that most of the people we're going to be talking about here are, at the end of the day, writers. Like, novelists. People who do literature. People who are writing fiction and are therefore personally acquainted with the moral obligations, the ethical nuances, the, the consequences of writing fiction. Um, like, our stable of writers here is a pretty mixed bag. We got a couple of philosophers and Derrida, Maritain, and Sartre. Um, we've got a couple of literary critics and Booth, Gardner, and C.S. Lewis to some degree. Um, but overwhelmingly, these are writers who do philosophy or who do literary criticism, but writers first. Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, as much as Lewis is in fact a literary critic and very much sort of engaged in the whole literary theory business, you know, he is at the end of the day also a fiction writer. As much as Gardner is perhaps more famous for his thoughts on composition and writing and, you know, stuff like the art of fiction or his tenure as a creative writing professor, he was at the end of the day a novelist and considered himself a novelist first and foremost. Like, of all of the writers that we will be talking about, there are really only a handful of exceptions for writers who weren't themselves well-considered novelists in their own right. Like, Sartre, we consider a philosopher, but he considered himself a novelist as much as he was a philosopher. Maritain is one of our few exceptions, i.e. he is definitely a philosopher first. I don't think he ever tried his hand at fiction. Um... Derrida, as much as we'll get into his complexity and, and trickiness when we read his, his interview, um, he definitely considers himself to be a literary critic slash philosopher way more than he does a writer. Um, and Wayne Booth doesn't consider himself a fiction writer at all. He is, he is definitely sitting on the sidelines of this discussion, weighing in because he has seen how what this does to actual writers um, and therefore thinks that there is you know need for a greater overarching theory here. But John Gardner, Tolkien, Lewis, Tolstoy, you know, and Ayn Rand for that matter, John Gardner, like all of these are first and foremost writers writing about writing. Which honestly brings us into a whole other category of discussion, namely like books on craft, which is something else that I didn't bother to bring up in the earlier discussion of other interconnected disciplines and probably should have. But at the end of the day, we are going to be talking to and hearing from predominantly the experts on the subject. People who wrote and found that this writing had ethical consequences because they were in fact doing it and felt pangs of conscience as they were writing, and who want to talk about this. Who want to discuss about it from a personal perspective. And again... This hardly, like, is definitive or descriptive of the entire kind of ill-defined genre of the ethics of literature as we're talking about it, but it is something that I am especially fascinated by. Um, as I was picking other writers to talk about, I wanted to prioritize writers, people who knew this stuff personally. Um, so as much as, again, we came up with a list of predominantly conservative white dudes and also Ayn Rand, 
Um, I should emphasize that I did go out of this box. I did try and find other writers specifically. Again, James Baldwin springs to mind. Ursula K. Le Guin was another useful, uh, useful source in the research on this one. Um, these are also people who I want to prioritize. They're people who I want to talk about. I want to talk about this stuff from the perspective, predominantly, of writers of fiction talking about the ethical obligations of writing fiction. Um, so that includes stuff like Madeline Langle's, what is it, the Walking on Water, her discussion of like what it meant to be a writer and a mother and a Christian. Um, but I didn't want to include it largely because I've already got a little too much in the way of Christianity here, but also because it is more descriptive than prescriptive. So, again, like, the criteria will come and strike back. Likewise, Ursula K. Le Guin talking about, you know, um, how, you know, there are many writers who assume a white male audience in her uh, series of essays. Like, there are a whole bunch of, again, different perspectives that I should probably be including here and couldn't because I couldn't find a way to make them meet the other criteria. Um, again, like... I'm happy with the list that I came up with insofar as it includes all the things that I think are super duper important. I'm also unhappy with the list because it's pretty unrepresentative of the state of literature, especially here in the 21st century. And some of that is because it's the 20th century and because feminism is still in its nascent stages for a lot of this discussion. Some of this is because I suspect a lot of these writers don't have the room uh, to publish their big, like, highfalutin thoughts on, you know, big broad strokes theories of literature, like, yet, I don't know, it's, it's a mess. Uh, and I want to confess that, like, right at the outset. Um, I didn't have a whole lot of time to put this list together. I would definitely have sought out other thinkers, other perspectives, um, beyond the ones that I had, but... I wanted to get this up and running, and at the very least, I wanted to have this conversation as soon as possible so we can move on and explore more, and so we can look at those bibliography notes and, you know, find connections to other writers and start branching this discussion beyond the scope that it currently has. Um, but that it does bring us to the actual reading list, start to finish. Um, let's set aside these questions of the ethics of the ethics of literature, much as they do, you know, haunt me in my wee hours. Um, and let's talk about what we're actually going to read. Um, and next week, our first reading is going to be a typically Professor Kozlowski sort of tangential reading or discussion. Um, namely, I want to read Tolkien's Leaf by Niggle. Um, in part because it is itself on the subject of the ethics of literature and a particularly profound meditation on the subject of the ethics of literature in my perspective, in my opinion, but also because I want to actually do both things the way that I like to do on these early readings. Um, namely, I want to look at what Tolkien has to say about the ethics of literature here in Leaf by Nickel, but I also want to examine Leaf by Nickel and talk about how it is itself making ethical assumptions and ethical assumptions that Tolkien himself is keenly aware of. Um, so that is sort of our introduction both to the business of criticizing ethically and talking about the business of, you know, looking at literature from an ethical perspective, as well as looking at Tolkien's theory a little bit. Um, once we read Leaf by Niggle as our sort of introductory work, though, then we're off to the races. And we're starting with Tolkien, or Tolstoy's, uh, What is Art? Um, my 
particular copy of what is art is actually a copy of what is art along with some of uh, Tolstoy's other essays on art. Um, this is Elmer Maud's translation from I don't even know how long ago. Uh, I think it's 18 or no, 1930 was the translation that I'm using here from the World's Classics Edition. Um, the version that I have is very much a beat up old crappy like reprint. Um, I mean, I kind of love these books where it's like very obviously they just scanned the pages into a computer and then just printed them on a page and like the margins are just hugely oversized and stuff like that. Um, there are better translations these days. Like I know Pivir and Volokonsky have their own translation of what is art nowadays. Um, and I definitely want to read that at some point, but I have yet to get my hands on it. Um, but I like Maud's translation, and I do want to talk about quite a few of the other essays. So, yeah, we're definitely going to be focusing on what is art, but this collection includes uh, the essay Schoolboys on Art, on Truth and Art, um, a couple of introductions that he wrote for other writers, which you'll find happens quite a bit in the literary community and frequently contributes to our discussion here. Um, but again, first and foremost, we're reading What is Art, and that's probably all you'll need to read. Um, I expect we're going to spend three weeks on Tolstoy, um, we'll get into what is art, read a number of his other little essays on the, on the subject, and, you know, that'll probably take that long. Um, so, yeah, if you can get a hold of the crappy, I guess it's green-covered Oxford University Press Elmer Maud translation, be my guest. Um, if not, just read what is art, and we'll probably pick up on the, the rest of it as we go. Um, once we finish Tolstoy, we will move on to Ortega y Gasset's essay on the dehumanization of art, um, which will honestly bring us a little out of the literary category and into art sort of broadly and generally. This was another of the criteria that I kind of wanted to avoid, like wandering into like the plastic arts or the you know physical arts or anything like that. I wanted to focus primarily on writing and literature. Um, but I find Gasset's ideas here to be really interesting and to open up the kind of discussion that Maritain is going to be talking about shortly afterward. Um, so we're going to read the essay. It'll take a week. Um, we'll talk about it. We'll talk about sort of art history a little bit and 20th century art movements. It gives us an opportunity to talk about Dada and you know many of the other art movements that are very ethical in their mindset, especially, you know, in the sort of interwar period between World War One and World War II as the whole art and propaganda discussion is really happening. Um, so as much as Gasset has a lot of interesting ideas and I want to talk about those ideas, I want to very much emphasize the background underlying Gasset's arguments as much as I want to talk about the arguments themselves. Um, so again, add that to the supplementary reading, which we'll talk about in a moment. Um, once we talk about Gasset, we're going to move on to Sartre's What is Literature, which is new to me. Both Gasset and Sartre are new to me, but I was I wanted to include some writers before we got to like the 50s and 60s. Um, Sartre is definitely a writer in his own right and is definitely writing from his own perspective here. Um, so he is definitely including his thoughts on writing novels in addition to writing philosophy. Um, but he has a very clear-cut normative uh, ethical agenda and his understanding of literature is very ethically motivated as well as giving us some perspectives into existentialism and Heidegger and all sorts of cool stuff like that. Um, so we'll be reading that and that should take two weeks because that's a relatively long work. Um, after we read Sartre we jump into Maritain's The Responsibility of the Artist. 
um, which is really short and will only take like one week to read. Um, like it's longer than most essays, but you know, even in book form, I think my copy is only about a hundred pages long. Um, and let's see, my copy is the Charles Scribner's Sons edition, copyright 1960. Um, it's very beat up and, and rather, rather, uh, <laughs> like, I've had this for a while, ever since I, I did the original essay back when I was uh, in my undergrad, um, which I'm drawing a lot of my sources there from. Uh, that once we finish The Responsibility of the Artist and Mara 10, we're moving on to C.S. Lewis's An Experiment in Criticism. Um, as far as I know, the, the edition I have is still the one that like everybody uses. This is the Cambridge University Press 1961 edition uh, with a very glossy font. Uh, it's gorgeous. Um, but yeah, I've, I've uh, referred to this often like in my mythology class. If you've listened to my mythology lectures, you'll remember that I talk about on myth from this book. Um, we'll be reading the whole thing top to bottom. Uh, it kind of fails the normative perspective here, but his critical endeavor is fascinating and I definitely want to talk about it and sort of want to engage with it along with the other perspectives here. Um, so yeah, we'll read an experiment in criticism top to bottom. It should take only a week. Uh, and then we're on to Ayn Rand, because good grief. Um, Rand published a book called The Romantic Manifesto, which includes basically all of Rand's essays on morality and writing, um, and basically gives us a pretty good overview of her entire philosophy of literature altogether, which is extremely normative, as you would definitely expect from, you know, the writer of The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged. Um, you can bet it's going to be controversial, but I still want to talk about it because I do find her philosophy of art to be fascinating, even if deeply flawed. Um, and I want to talk about it. So two weeks we're going to devote to the Romantic Manifesto, and then we're very much coming in on, like, the late 20th century writers. So we'll be reading Derrida's interview, This Strange Institution Called Literature. Um, my copy is in uh, the collection Acts of Literature, edited by Derek Attridge. Um, which I think has been out of print for a while, but you can still track it down. Um, the interview, I suspect, you can find online if you look around for it. Um, I think it goes under that title, The Strange in Institution Called Literature, but it was the interview that took place in Laguna Beach in April of 1989, um, and the Bennington and Bowlby translation. Um, it's a good opportunity for us to talk about Derrida and his effect on this whole discussion altogether, as well as to look at Derrida's own attitudes towards literature. Um, so that'll be very much a sort of crash course in Derrida as much as it is anything else. So for one week, we're talking about Derrida and his effects. And then we read the heavy hitters, especially from the 1980s and 90s. Uh, we'll be reading John Gardner's On Moral Fiction in two weeks, and then we'll be reading Wayne C. Booth's The Company We Keep in Ethics of Fiction in what I hope will be three, but might turn into four. Um, so that's our reading list, top to bottom. Um, I imagine most of my listeners are just going to just clock in for the lectures and not do any of the supplementary reading. That's fine. Um, but I should stress if you do want to follow along, and I encourage you to follow along, if only so you can like make sure that I don't make any huge mistakes, um, those are the books we're going to be reading. And I will probably include the information about each book in the, the description of each lecture that we talk about. Um, so, yeah, we'll talk about that in further detail as we go. Um, but what I also want to emphasize, as I said at the outset, like, as much as that's the reading list and that's what I'm going to be sticking to and that's what we're going to be talking about primarily, all of these writers are very well versed 
in their own disciplines as well as the literature and the body of literature surrounding them. And as a consequence, like I said, there's probably some preliminary reading you should have done in order to just keep up with the conversation here. Um, and I want to divide our supplementary reading discussion into kind of two categories. I want to talk about the actual, like, disciplines that these writers are hailing from and engaging with and that you should probably know in order to be able to, like, keep up with whatever I'm saying about these things. But I also want to talk about a sort of, like, basics of literature discussion. Like, a lot of these writers are going to be harping on the same sort of works of literature over and over, and therefore you should probably be pretty familiar with them as well. Um, so first of all, let's talk philosophy of language, let's talk sociology and ethics and all that fun stuff. Um, again, you should probably know your Wittgenstein here. Uh, I did an, a lecture on Wittgenstein a long time ago, and it ended up being pretty crazy popular for some wild reason. I still don't know why. Um, but maybe review that discussion, because I probably get into the basics of, of Wittgenstein there. It has been a long time since I've recorded it. Um, if you're actually going to read Wittgenstein, yeah, track down the Tractatus Logico-Philosophicus, where Wittgenstein makes his claim that all ethics cannot be talked about, because that's going to come up. Um... And probably track, track down the philosophical investigations there, because we'll probably be talking about the effect of literature, the effect of language, the sort of vagueness there, like all of that will be relevant to our discussion. And, you know, Gardner especially singles out Wittgenstein and emphasizes that any writer who is working with Wittgenstein sort of in the back of his mind is doomed to fail. Um, you should also definitely be familiar with speech act theory. Um... The, fortunately, this is super easy to catch up with. All you need to do is read J.L. Austin's How to Do Things with Words, and you've basically got speech act theory in a nutshell. Um, the idea here is that, as I said at the outset, when you speak, you are acting. Um, and Austin's whole program here is we're going to like split the difference in all of these problems that we're dealing with in philosophy of language, the stuff that like Russell ran into when he tried to you know make a systematic account of language and failed, and therefore led to Wittgenstein asking all these questions in the philosophical investigations in the first place. Austin is like, forget it, we're just going to deal with these as acts and consider all speaking to be an act in its own right and look at it as a sort of like as an act as a con in terms of its consequences in terms of its ethics rather than in terms of its truth value as some sort of like assumed thing on a page um you'll also probably want to be familiar with derrida and his other works uh if you're going to read something here probably limited ink uh that's probably the most accessible work of derrida's and the most comprehensive um but i kind of am partial to of grammatology as well and there's a lot of good stuff in there but again we'll probably get more background than usual on Derrida, so don't stress about it too much. Um, also, you're going to want to be familiar with at least some semiotics thinkers and semiotics principles. Um, so again, track down a semiotics textbook if you can find one. Like, anything in the variety of an intro to semiotics will probably help you. I'm not going to, like, refer you all the way back to Peirce and Saussure and stuff. Um, if you are going to read more contemporary semioticians, I would recommend Echo and Roland Barthes. Those are the ones that I'm most familiar with and probably the ones that I'm most likely to uh, refer to. Um, Additionally, I'm probably going to refer to film critic Hulk at some point, because inevitably he is one of my major like references in the whole business of understanding semiotics. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if I bring up Lindsay Ellis at some point. So by all means, track down Hulk's current crop of essays, or the old stuff that he published on Vulture. 
um, or what was it, Birth or Birth Movies Death, I think is where a lot of his stuff is hanging out these days. Um, Lindsay Ellis, you can find all of her videos on YouTube and Nebula these days, and there's a lot of good stuff there, especially track down her essay on, um, what is it, the, the fascism underlying Star Wars? I forget what the, the title of that essay is, but it is especially good for appreciating the semiotics and the, the potential consequences of doing movies here in the 21st century. Um, as far as hermeneutics goes, you can definitely read Gadamer. Like, Truth and Method is pretty solid, but it's also a haul as far as reading is concerned, um, and therefore might not be all that helpful and probably only tangentially related in the first place. Um, more useful, you'll probably want to track down some of the major writings of the 20th century that have become very current in the discussion of popular culture. So like Mulvey's The Male Gaze might be relevant here, as well as some of the psychological essays talking about like violence in media and its connection to violence and, and children and stuff like that. Um, again, I'm not super familiar with this stuff, but I'm sure it's relevant uh, and I'm, you know, it'll probably help you to understand it. It's something that you kind of like assimilate after reading a lot of this stuff, but I've never actually gone back and read Mulvey myself. Good grief, I'm terrible at this. Um, likewise, reading some essays by Baldwin, especially his thoughts on like Uncle Tom's Cabin and stuff would be super helpful here as well as Achebe writing about Heart of Darkness. Um, these are all useful to understanding the perspectives that I really don't get into that much here, but which will become relevant as we talk about these things, and which I'll probably refer back to pretty frequently. Um, additionally, I hope you know ethics. Like, I'm so sorry that I have not managed to get the ethics class into lecture form at this point, and it's not likely to happen anytime in the near future. Um, but definitely read Constant Groundwork of the Metaphysics and Morals, because we'll be bumping into that pretty frequently. Um, have some basic understanding of utilitarianism, whether through Mill or somebody else. Um, like, we're going to probably bump into it. We're probably going to end up discussing this in some respect. Um, like, I'll probably be name-dropping these guys and these theories pretty frequently just because that's the way my brain works and you can't talk ethics without knowing ethics. Um, likewise, from the literary perspective, this is going to be rough. Um, I should emphasize all of these writers have their own sort of pet favorite writers and thinkers, and they're going to be name-dropping them all of the time. Um, and a lot of these works I haven't read. Like, let's be super honest here. Some of this stuff is ludicrously obscure. Uh, like, John Gardner has this whole discussion about, like, at, at one point on moral fiction, I think it's on moral fiction, I might be getting it confused. At one point he talks about this really crazy novel called The Eustace Diamonds, which is like the third book in a series by Anthony Trollope. Like, I actually went and tracked down the, the, the whole... Uh, Palazer novels series and have read the first three novels just so I could understand what he was referring to in the Eustace Diamonds. Um, and this is true for a lot of the works. Like, I've often used these books as a springboard for my own understanding of literature, my own research on this subject, which means I'm going to be weirdly familiar with a lot of this stuff, but not familiar with all of it. Like, one of Booth's famous or favorite writers, one of the ones that he refers to often, is Henry James. I don't know a dang thing about Henry James. Like, I read The Turn of the Screw, and that was, like, it. And maybe if I'm really responsible, I'll manage to read The Ambassadors or something before we finally make it up to Booth in our discussions. Um, but this is the kind of thing we're talking about here. All of these writers are going to be bringing up more writers who you're going to need some amount of familiarity with in order to keep up with the discussion. 
So with that in mind, I want to emphasize that some of the ones that are going to recur pretty often here are you're going to need to know your Tolstoy, you're going to need to know your Dostoevsky, you're going to need to know your Homer, you're going to need to know your Dante, you're going to probably want to know some Chaucer, and you're definitely going to want to know your Shakespeare, um, you're going to want to know Milton, like... All of the great classics, I'm going to assume you are familiar with already. Um, if it is something that is on the high school curriculum, I'm not even going to mention it. I'm just going to assume that you've read Hamlet, or Lord of the Flies, or, you know, the Iliad and the Odyssey. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that you need to know them especially deeply, like a Sparknotes review will probably do the trick here. Um, but I should emphasize that, like, the great works of the literary canon are going to be discussed here as though everybody involved in the discussion is already familiar with them. Um, Gardner and Booth and Tolstoy are all going to assume that you know who Dickens is and that you know that Dickens is a very socially conscious writer who is very engaged in talking about the plight of the underclass in Victorian England. That's a given. Maybe you only know Dickens through A Christmas Carol. Maybe you've read, like, David Copperfield or Oliver Twist. Maybe you are a Dickens scholar and have gone through the old curiosity shop and Little Norrit and all the stuff that nobody reads. Whatever the case may be, they're going to assume that you're in the scholar category, that you have, in fact, read The Old Curiosity Shop. I haven't. Um, but I should emphasize, like, this is just a baseline knowledge that these writers are conversant in and exchanging ideas about, and you're going to have to know something about this stuff in order to get by here. So, again, this is a rough kind of su uh, supplementary or, like, reading category, but I should stress, again, you should know some Tolstoy, probably read Anna Karenina if you haven't. You should know Dostoevsky, probably read Crime and Punishment if you haven't. Um, maybe go back over some of the stuff that I've had to say about the Brothers Karamazov in the past. You should probably know Homer, which hopefully, like, that shouldn't be a problem, because I have extensively published lectures on Homer. Um, probably know Shakespeare, which somehow I've not gotten around to on this channel, but whatever, we'll get there eventually. I suppose. And just because I know this one is going to come up, I hope you've read The Adventures of Huck Finn, because that one is going to be, get a lot of discussion, especially from Booth. Um, I'll try to anticipate some of these, and if there is another reading or writing that I think is especially relevant going ahead, um, you should, I'll try and, like, draw your attention to it. Um, so, like, for example, here when we are going on like, as we are getting ready to talk about Tol Tolkien in the next lecture in Leaf by Niggle, you should probably be at least familiar with The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, because you better believe that I'm going to be talking about it there. Um, but, you know, as we get into Tolstoy, as we get into our other writers, I will attempt to be a week ahead in, in our lecture writing so I can say, you know, definitely read or familiarize yourself with the following writers because they're going to be super relevant in our next discussion. Um, I should also emphasize you should probably be familiar with these writers' other works. Um, like, I am in most of these cases. Uh, there are exceptions. Meriton, I don't know him that well. Ortega Gasset, I don't know that well. But, like, yeah, I've read a lot of Sartre. Yeah, I've read a lot of John Gardner's novels. Yeah, I've read a ton of C.S. Lewis and, and Tolkien. Um, as well as, you know, Tolstoy's novels and things like that. I will be referring to them. 
Like, you better believe that when we read Tolstoy's What is Art, I'm going to be referring to Anna Karenina, and probably some War and Peace, and possibly quite a few of his short stories, especially in his post-conversion career. Because um, he's going to want to talk about that stuff, and it's going to be relevant to understanding his perspective and getting a better sense of what he means where he is making certain critical uh, conjectures. So I would recommend reading at least one other book by these writers as well, um, if you can at all track them down. Um, so definitely, like I said, read Tolstoy's Anna Karenina. It'll be super relevant. Probably read John Gardner's Grendel or Mickelson's Ghosts or something. That will come up in Unmoral Fiction. Um, probably track down, like, one of Sartre's works, possibly No Exit. That's the super famous, super popular, and also rather short one. Um, that's gonna go for most of these writers as well. Um... So, again, I know that this is a lot, and I know most of you are not going to be equipped for any of this, and again, it should be totally fine if you just follow along with the lectures and have no knowledge of any of the stuff that I'm talking about. Um, but I should emphasize, this is going to be a discussion happening at a considerably higher level than most of the other lectures I've been talking, or I've been going through this to this point. I will be doing less explaining here, and more just, here it is. I will have no problem name-dropping Tolstoy or Shakespeare and assuming you know what I'm talking about. Um, there aren't prerequisites, because again, this is an online lecture series. I imagine people are just going to stumble into this, and that's fine. Um, but we are going to operate as though you are really familiar with a lot of these books, both in the other disciplines, like philosophy of language, as well as just literature in general which means that increasingly this is going to become an impossible task and there's nobody who is actually the appropriate audience for this. And again, I should stress, I'm not either. Like, as much as this sounds daunting, this is going to be, at the end of the day, limited by how intelligent I am about this stuff. And there's only so much intelligence that I have. As much as, you know, I am well-versed in a lot of these writers' and a lot of this literature, and a lot of this philosophy, and a lot of this scholarship, it, the gaping holes in my knowledge are going to be super obvious in this discussion, in a way that they often aren't in some of the lecture series where I'm more practiced and, and more well-versed, uh, where I have, in fact, spent you know years like honing my knowledge and, and teaching this over and over again and being paid to go out of my way and you know study Homer like top to bottom. Um, that hasn't happened at this point. Like, I have been picking up these books piecemeal for the better part of 15 years at this point, but it has been piecemeal and no one has ever paid me to do it until now. Um, and even then, it's not a whole heck of a lot of money, which is, you know, why I still gravitate towards subjects that I can teach with relatively little preparation. All that to say, relatively little preparation has gone into this besides the knowledge that I already had in my pocket. Um, I am coming at this as someone well-versed in these texts, and many of these texts are well-trodden for me, um, but I haven't done the requisite amount of research to really make myself an expert on this because it is so much. Like, this is what I want to write my dissertation on, and this is what I anticipate that I would end up spending years of my life doing nothing but studying, and I have, to some degree, tried to pick up what I could along the way. When Gardner drops a name, and I think that's especially relevant to his argument, I tend to track it down. When Booth drops a name, if I haven't tracked it down yet, it's probably because I want to and haven't, but because of lack of time. Um, 
This is, to some degree, me going out of my comfort zone and talking about stuff that I'm not terribly familiar with in an effort to get me to get more familiar with this stuff and to do more research and to feel compelled to learn this stuff better. So, on the one hand, I hope it does the same for you. I hope you too feel like you want to read more of this stuff, and I hope that this cows you and humbles you and causes you to think, you know, man, I really need to get around to reading Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, or man, I really need to get around to reading, you know, like Wittgenstein's Philosophical Investigations. I hope that that's what happens here. And I hope that the stuff that I talk about is fascinating and interesting, because it is, at least to me, fascinating and interesting, and in, like contributes to this whole very fascinating discussion that no everybody is participating in and nobody is knowledgeable about. Um, I really hope that that's the case. But on the other hand, if you don't have the time, if you don't have the background, if you don't have the knowledge, that's fine. Listen anyway. I will be screwing up. Your knowledge will hopefully not be too terribly abrogated by my mistakes, and hopefully will be, you know, increased by our discussion. Um, so with that in mind, that's what I'm looking forward to for the next 16 weeks. That's what I anticipate here in our discussion of the ethics of literature. It is going to be messy, it is going to be super scholarly at some points, and super screwed up and empty of knowledge on others. It is going to be a giant mess, in short. Behold, this is what knowledge looks like when it is in progress and not finished or polished. Um, but, again, that's better than nothing. No knowledge will ever be perfect. Um, this is just not a thing. Uh, like, especially not in the humanities. Good grief. But, for our purposes, that's what we're going to do. That's what our discussion of the ethics of literature is going to be. We are going to be approaching something that is incredibly fraught, incredibly politically controversial, incredibly complicated. We are going to do it the best that we can by listening to some recognized authorities on this subject, although these this is hardly the end-all and be-all of that authority, and there are going to be definitely people arguing that some of these writers are authorities at all. Uh, we are going to look at a variety of different perspectives and outlooks on this topic, and hopefully you'll be able to carry that stuff into those fraught, dis politically motivated discussions on the internet. Uh, but at the same time, hopefully with a background in this stuff that helps us all be a little bit more knowledgeable and raise the level of the discussion quite a bit here. We are, at the end of the day, not just engaged in studying ethics, we are engaged in doing ethics. And at least part of the reason why I want to talk about this stuff and why I want to spend a lot of my time studying this stuff is because I do want to do this better. I want us to understand literature better. I want us to understand the consequences of literature better. I want us to become better readers, better writers, and better critics. And to some degree, we've got to have this conversation in order to do that. And as long as our culture has this collective blind spot about studying this stuff seriously while also having this collective aneurysm about propagating this stuff every chance that they get and, you know, condemning, judging, making, you know, criticism and, like, informal censorship, let's call it that, a part of our everyday life, we're going to have to have these conversations. Um, so, again... I hope you're excited. I'm definitely excited. Messy and ugly as this prospect may be, humbled as I am by the you know prospect of talking about this stuff that I only know so much about. But at the same time, yeah, I'm excited. I'm enthusiastic. I definitely want to get my head into this. 
Um, next week, again, we're starting with Tolkien. We're going to read Leaf by Niggle. Again, I sh should expect that you should be able to find it online somewhere. Tolkien stuff tends to get bootlegged pretty readily. Um, if not, the book that I'll be using is Tales from the Perilous Realm, uh, where you can find Leaf by Niggle along with a bunch of Tolkien's other writings, including his famous on fairy stories, which I would strongly encourage you read if you haven't already. Um, call that the supplementary reading recommendation for today. Um, we will talk about Tolkien and his outlook. We'll talk about how Leaf by Niggle both communicates his ethical agenda as well as being an example of an ethical agenda. Um, it should be quite the discussion. I look forward to having it with you soon. Hey, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed that last discussion. Uh, I should stress this is hardly the end of the Professor Kozlowski online presence. If you want to read some of my essays or look into some of the other work that I'm doing in and around the internet or perhaps take one of my classes more formally, uh, please check me out at professorkoslowski.wordpress.com. That's very much the nexus point for all the stuff that I am doing online, and I usually keep it pretty well updated. Um, I should also stress we've got a lot of ambitious projects coming forward this year. Um, but a lot of those projects are kind of piecemeal and, and stalled as long as I'm not making a whole lot of money on this venture. Um, so the two ways that you can definitely help to make Professor Kozlowski Lectures a success are like, share, and subscribe. Get the word out. Let people know that I'm talking about something that you're interested in or that there's something interesting going on with the work that I'm doing. And if you can, absolutely, please consider contributing to to my Patreon at patreon.com slash Professor Kozlowski. Um, a little bit of money goes a long way there, and it helps you to vote on the new topics that we're going to come up with, or even uh, suggest new topics, especially for one-off summer lectures. So I hope to hear from you soon. I hope that you, you know, get that word out, and I'll be back soon with a new lecture.